totalitarianism is the belief at the end of the day that the ideology of the totalizing enterprise has to fill every aspect of life for every individual. I am a husband, a father, a lawyer, a Christian, and a proud Canadian. I started this series because it was clear that our nation needs truth. Not just another biased narrative, but real information of substance. We need access to facts and the freedom to think for ourselves. I'm Leighton Gray, and this is Gray Matter. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gray Matter. Well, today I'm really delighted to have on the program someone who's really the foremost thinker in his field uh, and also one of the most controversial. And he's thinking and writing and uh, doing a lot of public speaking in the space of critical race theory and wokeness. And I think I'm in the category of many people who think they have an idea of what these terms mean. But having read a couple of uh, our guests' recent books, I was astonished to, to discover how actually ignorant I was about many of the things that James has been thinking and writing about for some years. Our guest today is the honorary Canuck, uh, James Lindsay. Thanks for being with us today, James. I know you're very busy on your current Canadian speaking tour. Yeah, it's, uh, I am busy, but it, it's good to be up here. This is my first trip up to Canada as an adult. I was here a, a bit when I was a kid, but uh, this is very exciting. I know you call yourself an honorary Canuck. I'm going to ask you to explain that. You've also said that our country may be the, the wokest country in the world. Uh, I, I would probably have to uh, uh, you know, agree with you, unfortunately, uh, as sad as that is. Uh, but um, I'm interested to, to dive in and talk about some of these things that you've been thinking and writing about. Before we do that, uh, as we always do, we're going to frame our discussion with a few aphorisms. Uh, these uh, are paying homage somewhat to some of the people that you talk about in your most recent book, that is Race Marxism. The first quotation we have is from uh, Herbert Marcuse, who wrote that thought that accepts reality as given is no thought at all. The second one is from somebody else who's talked about a lot in your most recent book, Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, and she wrote, the better we understand how identities and power work together from one context to another, the less likely our movements for change are to fracture. And uh, next from uh, another person from your book, uh, who's uh, Friedrich Hegel, who wrote, it is easier to discover deficiency in individuals and states and in providence than to see their real important value. And finally, from our guest, uh, from his book, who wrote, critical race theory is a disaster. It has no legitimate place in our society. I couldn't agree more. So who do we have in the show today? Well, James Lindsay, he's an American-born author, mathematician, professional troublemaker. Uh, Dr. Lindsay has written six books spanning a range of subjects, including religion, the philosophy of science, postmodern theory. He's a leading expert on critical race theory, uh, which has led, led him to reject it completely. Uh, he is the founder of New Discourses, that's his own podcast, and is currently promoting uh, his new book, as well as another book that he co-authored called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Uh, and uh, I understand that that book has been uh, translated now into uh, over 15 languages. Well, welcome to the program, James. Thanks very much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we, ha we have to ask you this. Why are you an honorary Canuck? Well, the thing is that um, there's been some controversy about my trip up here to Alberta, 
and I tend to try to use insults. Uh, <laughs> I, I take them to myself and use them as armor. And so I thought it'd be funny to provoke people who are upset that I'm here. They said that Canada doesn't want me, uh, which I don't feel like that's been my reception so far. So I, I think I was right and they were wrong. But they said Canada doesn't want me. So I said, you know what, I'm an honorary Canuck now. So um, I'm one of you. You can't stop me. And uh, here I am. Well, we're certainly pleased that you're here and, and certainly grateful for the books that you've written. You've probably already gotten the sense that uh, Canada is uh, is a country, and this may be true of other countries, where some of these uh, these idea pathogens that you write about have taken root. Uh, you know, there's a there's a distinction between the way that our country is being governed and our institutions, and the way people actually think and feel. Uh, and you you probably got a sense of that already. I'm certainly very happy to bestow that or to honor that <laughs> that honorific. Uh, that to have you as a as a Canuck, and very glad that you've taken time to come and visit our country. I want to talk to you. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about your book, uh, which I have to say, um, and I've I've read more than a dozen books on this topic, but yours uh, is certainly the most comprehensive one, uh, and maybe the best. I would put it in the in the top three. That, that I have read so far, I, I would put it right up there with a book that Douglas Murray wrote called The Madness of Crowds, and another one that was written by Heather McDonald called The Diversity Delusion. But your book is very fascinating because you go into so much detail, so much depth. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to read this book a couple of more times before I get it all. Um, did, you, did you have that sense when you were writing Race Marxism that uh, you really had to dig very deep to kind of get at the roots of these ideas to, to before you could fully explain them. Yeah, that was really the goal. Um, I don't actually, I think that almost all of what critical race theory is, and that's the point of the book, is unpacked in the first two chapters, uh, which is, it's a discussion of what critical race theory actually says and is. That's the first chapter, and the second is what it believes. Uh, and it kind of lays out 13 or 14 tenets of, of belief across, you know, various schools of thought and critical race theory. And after that, though, it's like I, I felt like audiences need to know where does this come from? So that's where I started to peel, peel it back and go backwards through the history of philosophy and talk about the neo-Marxist influence and the postmodern influence and the original Marxist influence and even the Hegelian dialectical influence. So basically the entire history of German idealism and, and kind of the French Romanticism, because without understanding that background context, it's very difficult to understand what CRT is. But the first two chapters, therefore, while they are deep and while they are somewhat challenging, uh, and I, I do, you probably do need to read it more than once. I had to read the source material five or six times each for the, the different sources to understand what really? it says. Yeah, it's just not easy. It's unfortunately just not easy. But I think that the first two chapters are, are actually pretty easy, relatively speaking. And then the second two chapters, unfortunately, are very difficult. And that's where it goes back into the kind of um, philosophical background. Yeah. And then after that, I talk about what critical race theory does, how it operates. And that's not separable from what it is for, right. for critical race theory, for any Marxist theory, ultimately, uh, what it is and what it does are, are combined. They call this praxis. Right. And so I unload, unload that in the fifth chapter and then try to talk about its, uh, the, the classical liberal approach to society and politics as a uh, comparative in the final chapter. 
Yeah, I really found that, um, and perhaps this is the way that you structured the book deliberately, I found that th this idea of praxis, that looking at, at critical race theory, and not just critical race theory, to do justice to your book, you talk about, you cover the whole gamut of what we call, uh, you know, wokeness. Um, and, and you show how they're all sort of connected together and where they come from. But I really love the way you put it together in terms of praxis, sort of you know, we, judging it by its fruits. That, in other words, looking at critical race theory and understanding it from the point of view of what it does. I found that that sort of helped me uh, get a, a, a better understanding of some of the things that are talked about in the early part of the book. But you've said some very interesting things publicly that I want to ask you about. Uh, and I'm drawing some from your Twitter page that I enjoy, or X page. I enjoy following, by the way. Uh, you posted something that, that, that I th was very fascinating. I want to ask you about this. You said LGBTQ doesn't exist. It's a destructive contrivance by a small number of radical, and you say evil, disturbed political activists. I quite agree with you on that point. So they can consolidate power while hiding behind people who are, who are trying to live their lives. Would you mind explaining what you mean about that? Because uh, obviously LGBTQ is something has been very much in the news in Canada, as you know, with the million march for kids and so on. Yeah. So I'll start actually by kind of segueing out of the CRT stuff that these things are really the same. They're just different domains of thought, sex, gender and sexuality, as opposed to um, race. And with, with CRT, when I talk about what it does with praxis, I want to really underscore the idea that it's a cult and that uh, what cults do is produce more cult members. And then right. the cult members facilitate the cult growth, acquisition of resources, gaining of power or whatever else. This is no different over here. And this actually explains what I mean by LGBTQ doesn't exist. Um, it's very easy actually though to point out, show me a person who is gay and lesbian at the same time. Uh, such a person doesn't exist. So you know you're dealing with a political coalition with LGBTQ, which is a fiction. And so what I did with this that you that you've quoted is I also put a graphic up, which right. maybe proudly or maybe embarrassingly, I don't know, I drew myself and <laughs> uh, I put a number of dots. I wanted to give a sense of proportion and I colored lesbians purple because that's the color they use for themselves, gays, blue, bisexuals, this kind of vibrant pink, magenta, maybe color. And then trans was light pink and, and queer for Q is black because I needed another color. And uh, there's, as it turns out, 20 lesbian dots, 20 gay dots, 15 bisexual dots. There are three trans dots and then four queer dots on this graphic that I made to give a rough sense of the proportion. But the thing is, is the top three gays, lesbians, and bisexuals, if you want to say that they can make a coalition in that they are operating according to their sexuality, which they treat as an intrinsic part or an essential part of their identity, that's fine. Um, but when we go to trans, we're talking about something fundamentally different. We're talking about somebody who has something to do with their, what they call gender identity or what, a term that's being used more commonly now in the States or increasingly commonly in, in at least conservative circles is sex confusion. Sometimes you hear the term gender dysphoria. They feel as though their, their way that they live their lives in terms of masculinity or femininity doesn't match their sex. And that has nothing to do with sexuality whatsoever. So it is not a sexual orientation. It has nothing to do with who you're attracted to or want to have a relationship with or whatever else. Nothing to do with it. It's fundamentally different. And then on the third hand, you have this body of people that embrace queer politics. Queer is not an identity at all. 
It's a political stance. And in fact, they define it that way explicitly. Who are they? David Halperin, we can give you a name, for example, was one of the founding fathers of queer theory. And he wrote a book in 1995 called Saint Foucault, which is uh, credited as being the book. And it is the book where they first define the word queer as we use it in the word queer theory, or in this case, the Q of LGBTQ. And his definition is that it is a identity without an essence. So it's not an identity at all. It's not based in anything essential. What he says it's based in instead is a oppositional defiance to norms and uh, anything that's considered dominant or legitimate. And therefore, it is a political stance of pure opposition to anything being considered normal or dominant. It's mm. a political position. So when you once you put the Q on LGBTQ, I, I'll tell you, you could make a coalition of LGB, and that's historically done because they are similar. T is cobbling on something fundamentally different. If you want to do that, you've made a broader coalition, but it's something fundamentally different. And it's informed largely by this Q. Q is not an identity at all. It is, in a sense, a usurper. It's like a, it's like the cuckoo bird. I don't know if you know about the cuckoo bird. It lays its eggs right. in another bird's nest and causes the mother bird to raise uh, the young as though it's one of its own, and it usually kills off the other birds. It's, it's, it's parasitical. It is a political activist stance against normalcy, against decency explicitly, and uh, has nothing to do with who you are. It's who you've decided to, to be as a political actor. And so such a person, there is no essential queer by definition, and therefore such a person doesn't exist. Uh, LGBTQ is a opportunity for the queer activists to hide behind trans people in the far larger body of gays, lesbians, and bisexuals and pretend that they have a very large, broad coalition who are mostly people who want to go about figuring out how to live their lives and mostly be left alone so that they can be turned into a political weapon for a very small number of radical activists mm -hmm. who are not essentially anything. Mm -hmm. That's one of the insights that from your book that, that I had not, had not occurred to me before. And certainly explain, explains to some degree the attitude of groups like Gays Against Groomers uh, towards the, the, towards the, the trans non-binary community. Uh, from what I know about, about, uh, about Mr. Foucault, Foucault, he was no saint, uh, but be that as it may, I want to ask you about something else. This is something I just found today. It's a post from Starbucks Canada corporate headquarters, and this perhaps won't shock you given what you've said about our country. Um, but this is what they said. They said, we proudly fly the BLM flag, trans flag, and pride progress flag year-round. You might have heard that we've been told in Canada that now uh, September is is uh, LGBTQ plus uh, history month. Uh, I'm not familiar with their history, but in any event, so, so they're continuing on all the fun that we've had through the summer. But this is what they say, though, also in this post. This is Starbucks Canada corporate. We do not fly the Canadian flag because hate has no place here. Um, when I read that, it, it was very timely because it seemed to confirm a lot of the things that you talk about in your book about how uh, the, you know critical race theory and, and other sort of woke examples of woke ideology, they sort of invert uh, and pervert reason. Uh, and, and, and here they're talking about our Canadian flag, which is supposed to unite all Canadians, is actually one of hate. Whereas th this other flag, which seems to be spewing a lot of hatred, as you just explained, you know, that one's okay. 
So uh, do you want to comment on that? I thought this is very interesting in, in the context of your book. I mean, it's funny that these people claim to be against colonizers when they're very clearly acting exactly the way colonizers act. They've come in, they've established a flag. They say that you should fly this flag. It kind of reminds me of the Passover. If you don't fly the flag, who knows what ruination will be visited upon your business. But if you do fly the flag, maybe the, the, the angry pass you over. Yeah. Um, but the, you, you nailed it exactly. What they've done is they've held up the, the symbol of Canada, the banner of Canada as a hate symbol, which mm -hmm. should be, a, I mean, in kind of a genuine way. I know that we all kind of don't really care if anybody's offended in some sense, but uh, this should be very offensive to Canadians to say that this flag is a hate symbol. You know, it has a very offensive maple leaf on it, you know, the very intimidating um, symbolism there uh, on, on the flag. That, that's a hate symbol. But here, these other symbols uh, have to be flown and have to be shown uh, in preference. And of course, not everybody necessarily agrees. Those are explicitly political flags. All three of the ones that they named are explicitly political flags. As a matter of fact, I mean, we know that BLM is explicitly tied to Marxist uh, agendas. The, the, the founders came out and said that they were trained Marxists. Uh, there's been quite the exposés written by you know fellows from the Heritage Foundation, for example, in the United States on BLM and its Marxist roots. Um, it's quite clearly uh, this, this attempt to uh, cause Canadians to have to question the country that they are in, in favor of a very small number of radicals who want to push a radical agenda. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a provocation. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a dare. I dare you to say something about, I dare you to stand up for your own flag or your country or your heritage. I dare you to, we'll call you racist. We'll call you homophobic. We'll call you transphobic. We'll call you these names that we know have power over you uh, because we want to control you. We dare you to stand up for Canadian values and we'll use it just as an excuse to further denigrate Canada and Canadians uh, until you have submitted to our, our new policies. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I, this is the behavior of colonizers, um, particularly nasty colonizers in, in the way that they operate their politics, uh, particularly um, Marxist in their orientation. I mean, look at all of it. people say, why do you say that they're Marxist? Well, I've written books to the tune of hundreds of thousands of words now explaining why I think they're Marxist. But it's much simpler than that. What's their other symbol besides the flag is the raised clenched fist. Right. That is the communist fist. Every communist country in history has used that fist as its symbol. Why is it all of a sudden not communist for that fist to be portrayed now? Of course it is. Right. The, one of the things that, uh, is, that I found was, was fascinating about your book is it talks about communism or Marxism as an ideology, but then you also translate that in terms of its, its own praxis and that seems to be a form of fascism. In fact, uh, you, you post on your Twitter page, the push from the WEF today is to establish the creative class and essentially eliminate everyone else, the useless class, useless eaters, I think is the way Mr. Schwab put it in one of his books. And you say in a very real way, this is communism's final solution. The UNWF really can be thought of as the bastard child of the communists and the Nazis. You want to explain it, and you have this really interesting little diagram again. Your artwork is wonderful. You want to explain about that? But I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah, well, this is the thing. Um, the, the, the term useless eaters 
uh, originated with the Nazis. They actually, that was their term for really? the classes of people that they did not like. That was a term that originated with the Nazis. And of course, the concept of a final solution of eliminating everybody yeah. that uh, doesn't go along with your program was, was a Nazi concept. In fact, the communists didn't explicitly share that. If you look historically, the communists did not send people to concentration camps that turned into death camps, that, although that happened by... Um, by by consequence of what happened in the prisons, but that wasn't their design or their goal. The Gulag was designed to be a re-education prison. It was there to get you to become the new Soviet man. And so the goal was to re-educate. And if you couldn't be, well, that was too bad. Or if the work was too hard, well, that was too bad. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of compassion involved in the re-education process, but it wasn't a, explicitly a final solution uh, program. So what what we have now, though, is we have people like at the United, or at the uh, World Economic Forum, like Yuval Noah Harari, uh, like Klaus Schwab, saying explicitly that what we have is kind of two classes of people at the fundamental level. We can think back to the pandemic where you had essential and non-essential. Well, right. these terms for them are explicitly given as the creative class and the useless class. The useless mm -hmm. class is clearly a softening of the language useless eater, which is, of course, visceral. But uh, it's the same concept. These people that will be displaced by automation that don't really have a role in, in the, the coming society, they don't do the kind of creative work. But at the same time, from, you know, whether it's the uh, you know, education for global citizenship movement, whether it's the, uh, what they call education for sustainable development movement, or now there's this new thing that most people haven't caught on to yet connected to the sustainable development goals from the United Nations called the inner development goals, which are a remaking of, of man into sustainable man. It used to be Soviet man or socialist man, and now it's sustainable man. It's a re-education program. What you have is this, the creative class are the people who are on board with their agenda, exactly like you saw with Mao, exactly like you saw with Stalin, exactly like you saw with Lenin, exactly like you saw in the various other communist nations, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela, and you know throughout Europe and the Eastern Bloc, but also exactly like you saw in the Nazis. Uh, but in this case, the goal is actually to, well, we have these people, they're useless. What do we do? Well, we might let them live out their natural lives, but we try to discourage them from reproducing. We want to degrow the economies, degrow our population to save the planet for a more sustainable population. And Yuval Noah Harari has come out so explicitly with this as to say that what they're trying to build is a technological Noah's Ark uh, that will transport the creative class into a new world where technological marvels extend human life and all of these great things, the kind of transhuman agenda, but it, not everybody's going to be able to go. And so, you know, two by two, they'll go onto the ark and the creative class and the useless class will have to one way or another slowly or quickly be eliminated, which boils down to a final solution. And so you see the kind of worst parts of communist ideology and the worst parts of Nazi ideology coming together into kind of one new program under the banner of sustainability. And it's a very concerning thing that this whole inclusion, diversity thing that we've all been participating in for a few years now, all is pointing directly into that diversity, equity, and inclusion that we've all had to care about belonging is all being redefined in terms of global citizenship, sustainable development. That's where our education programs are going, where our colleges and universities, I've heard this is particularly true in Canada, Yes. That, uh, colleges are being college professors in Canada have been reaching out to me for months now telling me that they're being asked by the faculty or by the, by the administration, I should say, to 
changed their course syllabus to accommodate, doesn't matter what the course is, mathematics, philosophy, history, doesn't matter, to accommodate the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030 as explicit course material. And you can see that this push is happening and it's frankly time that we have to be very concerned and we have to be able to start to say, no, we're not going down this road because we can guess where this road leads, even if only by accident, it, it leads to calamity. Right. And that's their solution. But in your book, Race Marxism, you actually provide a solution, a better solution, a more hopeful one. Um, my understanding is it's a return to sort of more classical liberalism. And you use the term Americanism, which I understood to be, uh, you know, connected to the, the, the philosophy that was, uh, that, that's found in the Declaration of Independence, for example. Um, yeah. and, uh, and you, you, you go to some lengths to explain how that can be achieved. You want to talk about that a little bit? Cause it's important. I've noticed many of the books and you've probably, I'm sure read more of the books, uh, on this topic than I have, but a lot of the books talk about the problems. They, they talk about, you know, things that critical race theory or diversity, inclusion, equity, or, or things like that BLM are doing, but they don't really have practical solutions. This is one one of the things I really value and appreciate about about your most recent book is you actually uh, point to some some solutions some some practical solutions uh, to these issues. Do you want to talk about those a little? Yeah. So what I mean by Americanism, you're you're 100 right. I mean the values that are are written down primarily in the preamble to the uh, United States Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson riding high on the shoulders of John Locke. So it is the classically liberal approach. But at the end of the day, what is it actually saying? Well, it says, you know, we have, we, we, we're, we're, all men are created equal and we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or which is also the right to property. Because what's actually at the end of the day, what, what communism or fascism, it doesn't matter which one, they're, they're kissing cousins as it is, as we say in the Southeast and in the U.S. <laughs> uh, it's a colorful metaphor, I guess, but they're kissing cousins, communism, fascism, totalitarianism by any name or, or, or banner all has in common is that they try to eliminate family. They try to eliminate faith and they try to eliminate property and uh, property rights. And so if we can protect family, faith and property, uh, then we're, we're, we're already painting the road to a better solution. So what does it look like? Well, it looks like that if we have secured property rights that we have access to a little bit of our own that we can feel proud that we've earned and we've we've worked for and that we can, you know, do something with and pass on to our children and help to build even further. That biblically speaking, that looks like the parable of the talents. You right. receive however many talents. It's your job to go multiply those talents. And if, as you're faithful with a few things, you'll be made master over many. Um, that's ultimately the property right side with family and faith we we should be able to define for ourselves who we're going to spend our time with how we're going to relate to one another uh without government intrusion without the state coming in and saying hey we're experts and so we know how to raise your children better than you do we know how to you know try to overcome the loneliness epidemic that's a new thing that they're trying to put together task forces task forces to overcome loneliness uh, so we're going to have government-mediated friendship or association or something like this. And then with, with faith, it looks like religious liberty. I mean, I just had lunch. I, Canada is a little bit different than the U.S. I spent a lot of time with, with evangelicals and with, sometimes with Catholics and here and there with other people in, in, in the U.S. But I just had lunch with, with, with Christian 
Sikhs and, and Muslims all at the same time. And we're all talking. We're all, and it's just like everybody's like Canada, 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 Canada. Everybody's got this other thing that they care about, which is which is being Canadian, and it's right. clearly central, uh, mm -hmm. even as important as faith is. And what everybody sees immediately is that religious liberty or the, the the liberty to think and believe, and if you want to worship as you will, should not be compelled. And it turns out that this religion of sustainability or equity and inclusion and diversity, whatever. That is infringing on people's rights to do that. And people are standing up across faiths and saying enough is enough. Because if we're going to have a functioning, healthy society where people can flourish and we can be prosperous, we've got to have those things. We've got to be able to have families as families. We've got to be able to have uh, property protected and secured by our government so that it's not misused by third parties. Right. And uh, we have to be able to worship or believe as we will. Um, it, at the very fundamental level, what, what, the, what Americanism is about is humility as opposed to yeah. the pride and hubris. Yeah. It's about recognizing that none of us is God, so none of us intrinsically deserves political authority over anybody else. Nobody gets a divine right to rule. Nobody is our elite better. We get to determine as much of our life as we can for ourselves. We get to do that in concert with other people as we will. As long as those um, associations and, and, and agreements are made voluntarily, and that's all it really comes down to. I don't have political authority over you. You don't have political authority over me, and we will decide to loan our political authority to to elected representatives, not even leaders, who are going to um, try to enact political will for the good of the entire uh, populace. That's what counteracts these collectivist, totalitarian drives. Yeah. Uh, totalitarianism is the belief at the end of the day that the ideology of the totalizing enterprise has to fill every aspect of life for every individual. Right. And it therefore erases all ability to be individual. It, it seizes yeah. property rights and controls them. It takes away your ability to believe and worship as you will and to associate and form family and, and live in family as, as you uh, should be able to. Yeah, I really love the Declaration of Independence, the way it's written. I really see it as sort of uniting, you know, concepts like, you know, John Stuart Mill's concept of, uh, you know, the right of my fist ends where your nose begins. But also in there, as a Christian, I see the Lord's second commandment, which is to love your neighbor. And and and, and it also, it, it spreads a broad enough tent that we can, we also can live peacefully with people who are atheistic, right? Because we can agree on the importance of, of fundamental values without forcing other people, as you say, to adopt them as our own. We might have disagreements about religion as between Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims or Christians or atheists, but uh, you know, there's a broad enough banner there that we can all live peacefully together as long as we, we have a basic understanding of the rules of the game, the fundamental principles of our society. Coming back to that Starbucks thing, you know, the Canadian flag is an example of a logo that could unite us under that tent. And, uh, and so that sort of ties into what you talk about in your book about how these, these harmful ideologies, they have to destroy those logos in order to divide everybody into these camps so that they can then be conscripted into these, these hateful uh, ideologies, right? Yeah, it's, a, it's all about alienation. It's all about alienating people from one another, putting them in, in, in groups that are put into what's called social conflict with one another. 
under the auspices. I mean, there's so much deep psychology here. It's under the auspices of something called social identity theory, um, which was was developed in the 1950s. It's arguably one of the most uh, clear and comprehensible theories in social psychology is that we form these teams, and especially when we're put in comp- competition or conflict with other teams, we get very tightly bonded with our, our friend team and very hostile toward our enemy teams, and everything kind of becomes tribal and hostile and fractured. When you look at a symbol like the Canadian flag or for us the American flag uh, as one of your southern neighbors, what you have in the, what they call these in, 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 um, in the psychological literature is a superordinate identity. You have an identity that is above that local tribal thing that can, in fact, unite people. So, of course, you have to have this attempt to break that apart. You have to take the thing that could bring every Canadian, regardless of religion, regardless of background, regardless of financial standing, doesn't matter. It could take every Canadian and say at the end of the day, you know what, we're Canadian or, you know, we can come together at that. We have certain core. Well, what does it mean to be Canadian? Well, we have certain core values. We have certain core ideas. We have a charter of rights. We have all these different things that we believe in. And that's what it means to be a Canadian. And this is how we live our lives. And it has the power to unite people in that way. So, of course, they have to destroy that because they need people, you know, factionalized. They need people fighting with one another. And they need people to believe that this this group is taking from you and that group is taking from the other group. And nobody can get along because everybody's in, a, in an intrinsic conflict for standing and resources and opportunity in society. Where meanwhile, while everybody down on the ground is fighting these fights, the elite leadership that's stoking these divisions is just mopping up all of the resources to themselves. They're mopping up all of the opportunity and closing doors. Of course, being on a podcast in Canada now, I have to ask you, are you ready to register with the government now? This is the new thing, right? Um, These aren't things that free societies are worried about. These aren't things that confident governments uh, that are are actually working for the good of the people that they are supposed to represent um, do. They just don't do these things. It's a very concerning space. But yeah, to come back to the Starbucks issue, you were right. You have literally, this is well-defined psychology of superordinate identities that bring people together. So what you do, if you want to bring people together, everybody knows how to do this. Once you hear it, you're going to say, oh yeah, of course. If you've never thought about it, you identify a superordinate identity, maybe it's Canadian. Mm-hmm. And then you put people in a superordinate identity position and you give them a shared project to work on together, which can be building the nation, building the community or whatever else. And what happens is they grow together. You see this again and again and again. There there have been countless experiments done with this. Some have even been made into commercials on television to sell things like beer. Is that you can take people from disparate backgrounds, put them around a table. They've right. never met each other. They're very different people. They wouldn't get along if they knew all of each other's politics or whatever else. And they're sitting, sitting around a table and they're asked to solve a puzzle or put, put a piece of furniture together. And there, there was a beer commercial where they would have people from different orientations get together who wouldn't agree normally and their goal was to put together a table that was not assembled and then when it, the tables together they sat down and had a beer on the table together and that was the beer commercial it turns out these people often became lifelong friends because they worked on something together uh-huh. seeing themselves as the people who worked on the thing together this is how military teams team building has always worked you right. build a platoon you give them a project hey we're going to carry this log across whatever and Build a build a bridge across the ravine, and this is our mission for the day. And those missions build the team; they build the platoon. When you put people and you strip away all the factionalizing, and you add a superordinate identity, we're all together in this, and you give them a project to do together, like building Canada, getting Canada back on track. It turns out it brings people together 
as opposed to all this factionalizing. And they know it. So they have to destroy symbols of superordinate unity, like the Canadian flag, the American flag, and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. One of the ways that they divide people also is to punish dissidents. And you, you, this was uh, interesting to me because uh, like our mutual friend, David Parker, and yourself, uh, I've, been, I've been the subject, I've been the target of a cancel culture attack. But you coined a fascinating term I'd not heard before called Darvode, being Darvode. Would you explain what that means? Yeah, and I want to make it clear, I didn't coin Darvo. Darvo is a term that I also picked up from the psychological literature. Okay. Darvo is a tactic that is used um, by narcissistic abusers when they are caught doing their abuse. And so it is an acronym, and it stands for deny, attack, and then reverse the roles of victim and offender. So, well, so this, is obviously, this is obviously designed to describe our prime minister. Well, I mean, there are excellent reasons, as I think our friend Jordan Peterson's been pointing out, that uh, perhaps your prime minister is a bit of a narcissistic abuser. Yes, it is a narcissistic abuse tactic so that when you get accused of something or you get caught doing something, you deny that you did it and you turn around and immediately attack the person accusing you. And then you make out by reversing the roles of victim and offender, you make out that you are the victim and they are actually the person doing the offense even though that's completely backwards. This, and it is this literally just happened. You probably know this, James, in our parliament. They invited, a, 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 apparently, inadvertently, a withered old 98-year-old Nazi, and he got a standing ovation in our House of Parliament, and then Justin Trudeau defended it, and he accused the the opposition of, uh, of, of really doing the same thing and being mostly responsible for what happened. That's, that's really... Oh, yeah. You, again and again throughout his... his uh, tenure of power you can see examples of him doing darvo or something it happened with the truckers protest it happened with this recent nazi in parliament uh debacle and every time he gets caught or called out on on anything you'll immediately find that he denies that it was a problem attacks the people doing the accusation or the you know his opponents politically and then makes out that he was somehow the victim and that in fact the other people were the offenders who uh, brought it up in the first place or whatever. It, it, it's a standard tactic to, to deny and evade responsibility from narcissists who are incapable of, uh, psychologically incapable of, of taking responsibility for their errors. And is this typical, uh, just sort of tying this into your book, is this typical, this, this sort of behavior that we see from, from rulers, from the elites uh, in, in situations where uh, this type of, uh, Marxist ideology is being imposed. I, I think it's I think it's typical of tyrants across the board throughout history. In all cases, the tyrant can't be wrong. Mao held himself up literally for the Chinese people as a god, and so how could a god be wrong? In fact, I've talked to people who who lived under Mao's regime uh, in China. I'm friends with some survivors of his Cultural Revolution, and uh, they said that when Mao died in 1976, that they they were they were destroyed. They were gutted they they were they were lost they couldn't figure out how a god could die and that was the took them sometimes a year or two to get their psychological bearings back how could god die it, it's not possible but they had truly imbibed on the the cult religion of maoism and truly believed that mao was incapable of error and this is, is a very typical tactic to build yourself up and to shame the people 
who are are under you and to more and more support kind of the Stockholm syndrome kind of approach to to building a political coalition that's completely typical of tyrants. They, like I mentioned before, it's atomizing and loneliness that they're weaponizing. They make you feel like if you don't fly the BLM flag or don't fly the pride or progress flag or you don't hold up your fist or you don't show up and have the rainbow or whatever it happens to be, that you're a bad person, that you won't fit in, that you don't understand, that you're going to be alone. You're going to be sad and alone and miserable and you're on the wrong side of history. History is going to leave you behind and you're going to be forgotten and you're going to be lonely. And they, they make you feel that loneliness. And then they you pledge your loyalty to them and adopt the idea that they can do no wrong as a solution so that you can feel that you fit in. Uh, so you can form in order to feel less alone, even though you know it's, it's false. This is the pattern of tyrants and the tool of narcissistic abusers. And DARVO is exactly the technique they use to flip around responsibility. So you feel ashamed yourself for accusing dear leader in the moment of his error. Fascinating. Um, as a lawyer, I was very uh, interested to read a piece that you published uh, recently called Rousing the American uh, Judiciary. You wrote this in August of last year. Um, and uh, one, of the, one of the, I guess the tools or the weapons by which, uh, you know, tyranny and and subversion of, of our culture is being achieved is through the courts, uh, through judicial activism. This is a very serious problem in Canada. And I learned through your piece also in the United States. Do you want to talk about this one a little bit and why you wrote it? Yeah. So I think that the most, I agree with what you said, you know, with, with John Stuart Mill's idea that the, the right of my fist ends at the tip of your nose. And so right. what that is in, in, in a broader principle is that in a truly free society, uh, there's a complete prohibition on violence. In other words, the way that actually is enacted is that nobody is allowed to do violence first. People right. are allowed to do violence to protect themselves when either there is violence being visited on them, which is already illegitimate, or when it's become imminent. That's called self-defense. But nobody's allowed to do violence first, and that that's considered illegitimate. And so... Um, what I've noticed is that or what that means is that the most effective tool that we have, because we actually don't want this to descend to violence anyway, is lawfare. But the problem is, is if we go and we file lawsuits. It all depends on what the court understands and what the court doesn't understand. At the end of the day, there's a magistrate or there's a, a, a judge who is going to make a determination based on his understanding or her understanding of the law and understanding of the, the circumstances of the suit. And if that person is being bamboozled by misappropriated language or misleading language, we all know, for example, that the word diversity somehow doesn't mean diversity. The word inclusion somehow means exclusion. But if you're not hip to that, if you will, if you don't understand the you know, esoteric meaning of these words, then you can get fooled by them very easily. Uh, and simultaneously, the other thing is our, our expert class is, is not particularly in a position where we can extend it trust. Um, right. It's very easy to get an expert witness up that stands on behalf of, you know, whatever crazy theory, because there's all this academic literature. There's all these uh, professionals who have imbibed in, in ideas that are completely wrong. And so you have what I thought about is you have judges, right? And judges are busy people, very busy people. And they tend to be a little bit ensconced from the general population right. often. And 
they it's not I guess in an ideal world it would be, but it's not their job to know, say it's a medical malpractice lawsuit. It's not their job to be doctors. No. It's not their job. It is their job to understand and adjudicate the law. So if you end up with bad experts using poisoned language show up and trick the judge into thinking that something like gender affirming care is real and necessary and valuable and suicide preventative using whatever you know pieces of, of, of scholarship or evidence whether that's cooked books or not we just saw for example with crt the big claim behind black lives matter was in fact that the police in the united states policing itself is intrinsically racist and then we see that that was based on this the the scholarship of a man at florida state university called if i have the university right called eric stewart and eric stewart fabricated all of his data for decades it was all fake Incredible. the whole was based on false data. Well, this guy shows up in court and he tells the judge stuff based, well, here's a study, here's another study, here's another study. I'm an expert witness. I'm getting $1,000 an hour to come tell you these fabricated lies. And if the judge, the judge, it's not the judge's job to be able to adjudicate what's going on in the academic literature. He has to trust experts in the, in the words that they're using. So there's this gap where the judges who have to make these determinations, if they're asleep to what's really going on, then they're going to rule incorrectly on these very important matters. And they are the stopgap. They are the last thing stopping violence from trying to deal with the problem, which none of us should want. None of us do want, as far as I've never met somebody who does, uh, outside of the very edge of the fringe right, which scares me too, frankly. Yeah, um, me too. That's the case. We have to rouse the judiciary. We have to get them to understand, look, the words that are on the piece of paper in front of you or that are being spoken in the courtroom or in the lawsuit may have more than one meaning. And you need to be aware of that and at least be able to ask the question, which way do you mean the word? Yeah. Also, the expert might be presenting something based on falsified data. So you may need to request more opinions, dissident opinions. Uh, you may have to actively seek out the experts who disagree with the testimony of expert witnesses that are brought in by you know whichever side of the suit in order to get a fuller picture to make the adjudication more clearly and if the judiciary stays asleep none of that happens and it's all a matter of whether these con men which is what they are they're confidence men whether these con men can come in like eric stewart with his uh, crt lies about policing and fool the judge or whether truth can prevail and the judge can rule with wisdom based on actual facts and actual information mm -hmm. You talk about this further, another piece you wrote where you talk about the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, who branded you uh, <laughs> general hate. <laughs> but here you're, you're talking about, you say it's a joke at best and a powerful tool of defamation that our government law enforcement agencies take very seriously. At worst, has named me an extremist, giving me what appears to be the title general hate. And that piece you were talking in this vein about how, uh, you know, an organization like the Southern Poverty Law uh, Center which was designed to, or was founded to protect, uh, you know, the, the most vulnerable of our, of our society is actually being weaponized uh, by the people who are, are destroying our institutions and actually misleading courts into making uh, really disastrous legal decisions. Yeah, that's true. The Southern Poverty Law Center is, is an activist organization of the worst type at this point. So the story behind that is they they did write an extremist profile for me. They claim that I'm an extremist, I'm anti-government extremist, 
apparently I traffic in conspiracy theories, the whole nine yards. It says that on my profile that I made fun of George Floyd on January 6th. That's literally an entire section about me, about my, my crimes and sins that I've committed. And it, it's, it's just preposterous that that is, is taken seriously, but it is taken seriously. Our law enforcement entities take it seriously. In the United States, the Department of Justice takes it very seriously, which is frightening because it's being weaponized against political dissidents, as we can see in the news. Here in Canada, it's being taken seriously. That's been the justification. You know, I'm here for some speaking events, and we've had a bit of a problem keeping and securing venues where we can speak. Uh, and the, the reasons are because I've been named a Southern Poverty Law Center extremist. So they've weaponized that. Uh, as for the general hate, they didn't know where to classify me, so they classified me under what should be hate, comma, general. <laughs> hate in general. And so I just took it as a title because it says general hate. Uh, I'm, I don't hate in specific, I suppose. I only hate in general. And um, I took it as a title because this is, again, it's the same thing. You have to wear these attempted smears and insults as armor and make them funny because it takes the power away from them when you do that. Mm, fascinating. Um, and you actually, another piece, I, uh, the last one I want to ask you about before we get into our reading list is, uh, you wrote a piece in May uh, entitled "You Should Be Reading and Doing," and uh, the description here is: You get asked all the time, uh, "How do you come up with so much stuff about against woke Marxism?" And you say, "It turns out it's pretty simple. Uh, there's a pretty simple secret to doing this uh, that you share in that piece. Would you mind sharing that with our audience?" Yeah, it turns out that what I've noticed because sometimes I'm good at this and sometimes I'm not as good at this. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I'm busy. Um, I'm, human like everybody else. And uh, what I've noticed is that when I'm reading or when I'm getting out in the world and doing things with people, I have almost an endless amount of content that I can produce. I have an endless amount of examples to draw from lessons that I'm picking up as long as I'm reflecting on what's happening. But if I'm reading, I have things to say. If I'm doing stuff in the world, I have things to talk about. I have relatable uh, information to share with people and I'm excited to share it. And it's all very motivating. But when I get tired and I decide I don't need to read as much or if I sit around at home and, you know, don't get out in the world as much, what I notice is that I struggle. What's the next thing I'm going to talk about? I'm kind of out of things to say. Maybe I'm all all used up now. I don't know what else to say without just repeating myself. And so getting especially getting your noses in, in books. Overwhelmingly useful. There's so many ideas, so many things to think and talk about. The thing we talked about with the kind of fusion of fascism and communism or this Nazi and communist idea earlier that I put on, on Twitter last night was a result of reading something about Marx in a book that I was reading yesterday uh, on my flight here to Canada. And it struck me and I, I'd never thought about something that Marx had, I'd read it in Marx many times. I'd never thought about it in that, quite that way until I read somebody else's commentary on it. And then I said, oh, wow, that's an extremely interesting way to think about this. And then I ran with the idea and was able to write that small uh, thread on Twitter while I was, you know, flying over the border or whatever. And yeah. so when you're reading and when you're out in the world making connections and doing, um, you, you, your cup overflows with useful and interesting things to do and engage. In other words, a lot of times people say that they don't know what to do. Well, if you just start showing up and getting to know people and working on something or working on a project or just start reading, what you find out is that you have tons and tons and tons of things that you can think of to say or to do next. And when you stop doing that, it gets very difficult. Mm. I'll, I can tell you that uh, I had the experience you just described 
probably at least 100 times when I was reading Race Marxism. Uh, it's just an astonishing book, uh, really, really just a brilliant piece of work. And I cannot imagine how much thought and work went into it. Uh, so that's one of the books that's featured on our reading, on our reading list today, Race Marxism, uh, published uh, fairly recently. Uh, we talked about that one in, in considerable detail. Is there anything else that you would want to say to our viewers about that book uh, that we haven't covered in the, in the, I know it's, I mean, obviously uh, we can't cover it all, but is there anything important about that book that perhaps I neglected to ask you about that you'd want people to know? Yeah, I just want to tell people what the, in a sense, the first real sentence of the book is. There's an introduction, but it's not that. When I get to the first chapter where I'm defining critical race theory, um, the first sentence, in fact, what I do, the, the very top of the first chapter is I give three definitions for critical race theory and an increasing kind of level of being technical and, and I guess accurate. The first of those definitions is the one that I want to share. So it's in a sense, the first sentence of the book and it's critical race theory written like in a dictionary. So critical race theory noun. And then the definition I give is calling everything you want to control racist until you control it. It's right. that simple. If you had to boil down critical race theory to a single concept, it's calling everything you want to control racist until it's under your control, which means it's just a power play. When we look at this other stuff, whether it's the queer theory, whether it's the gender stuff, whether you know any of these right. ability, immigration, any of these issues that they, the, the critical theorists have weaponized, sustainability, even it does a pandemic with the unvaccinated and the deplorables and whatever other names they gave people, the anti-maskers, you know, the whole thing, anti, anti-vax, anti-mask, the whole thing. They had all these names for people. It's always the same formula. It's calling things names if you want to control them until you control them. Right. And that is the whole game. That's actually what we're up against is being called names so that we'll be controlled until we're under their control. And I think it's the most important concept uh, in the book. And I'm glad that it turned out to be the first sentence that I put in the book, too. Um, the, the first time that I learned about you, heard about you, was uh, uh, when I, I listened to the audio book of a book called Cynical Theories that you authored with Helen Pluckrose. This was a, a wonderful book. It's called Cynical Theories, How Active Scholarship Made Everything About Race uh, and uh, and gender, uh, gender and identity, and why this harms everybody. Uh, that book um, focuses a lot on language, on the language that they, these people use, and how they sort of um, sort of pervert and invert meanings of, of words and create new meanings for words that we think we know. Um, th this this was a very fascinating book. You want to talk about that one a little bit and how you became involved in that project? Yeah. So. Ultimately, so it was originally Helen's idea. It was Helen's book. In fact, it wasn't even, I was, I was not part of it. I was going to be an editor okay. and an advisor to the book. And she was going to write a book about postmodern theory and how it informs the various strands of identity politics that we see. She had to learn postmodern theory for her master's degree many years ago, uh, which is in English literature. And, um, she was appalled by it, but she sees that it informed a whole style of feminism and it informed a whole style of ultimately post-colonial theory, critical race theory, queer theory, um, gender studies, uh, women's studies and fat studies and the ability or disability studies. And, and she wanted to expose that. And we were trying to figure out how we might go about it. At the same time, we were involved in what's called the grievance studies affair, where we were writing a large number of uh, fake academic articles in these 
these disciplines to show that the peer review system couldn't tell real from fake. You could literally make it up and uh, be, be absurd at the same time, and they would still publish it. And we were very successful with that. So the goal was to tell the world what we learned without really pointing the light back at ourselves. And uh, Helen brought me in on the project, and we just decided to just explain how has this activism taken over the universities? What is, what is its way of thinking? And how are all of these different identity politics, things that we're dealing with in the world today, informed by what boils down to bad French and German philosophy? And so we went, we outlined postmodern theory and uh, it, its kind of critical application in the first couple chapters. And then we just start knocking these things off one by one, post-colonial theory, critical race theory, queer theory, on down the line, uh, and then compare them at the end again to, to classically liberal values and classical liberal society and show that, in fact, they are not, and this is a big mystery for people. They think, well, I'm supporting liberal things by getting involved in BLM. No, you're not. You're actually supporting something that's explicitly and aggressively anti-liberal. It's against freedom. It's, a, it's completely against the principles of what it means to be liberal or free or to have liberty. And so we wanted to expose that and show that. And so Helen brought me in on the project uh, to actually co-author it with her. Um, and it came out at a very fortuitous time. It came out due to the pandemic. It got delayed. Uh, so it ended up coming out immediately after George Floyd died, about a month, two months maybe after George Floyd died. And um, the, it really provided people with a great amount of information when they suddenly felt like they needed it. In fact, there was a huge problem at the first when it came out. Was it, we, we, were, we were making the order, I think, for the fifth or sixth print run before the, the, you know, within the first couple of days because it just sold so quickly. We had no way to anticipate that it was going to be that popular uh, before it actually went out. Mm -hmm. So um, mm -hmm. it, I think it was very important for us to try to inform people on the, the philosophical underpinnings and understanding how the, the thought process behind these things work and to distinguish it from those classical liberal values that we take for granted in countries like the United States and Canada. I found it's a nice companion piece to to your book, the race Marxism, uh, and and reading them two together. In fact, I I finally go back and and uh, and read uh, this book again, having now read race Marxism. I'm going to have to get through race Marxism at least a couple more times to to glean all of the the wisdom that's there. Uh, now you've written, I believe, seven books in all. Now, James, uh, are there any other books that uh, you would recommend to people? Not necessarily your own, but if they are your own, that's fine. But uh, obviously, you're very widely read uh, in in these areas, in these topics. Are there any other books that you would recommend to our viewers and listeners that would enhance their understanding of the things that, that you are writing and, and, and speaking about? Well, other than the ones that you already mentioned, I will point out, I do have a book about education that I think will be enlightening for parents. Well, yes, yes, teachers. yes. I haven't uh, read that one yet. I have bought it. I'm, I'm finally getting to that one next. Yeah, yeah, let's that's talk about that one. That's the Marxification of education. I want yes. people to understand how our education system transformed from something that taught children reading, writing, arithmetic, and history, and so on, into something that uh, teaches activism and radicalizes them into activism. And I wanted to, to explain it as a theft of our education system. Mm -hmm. And so that book has been very illuminating for a very large number of parents uh, across North America so far. Uh, it's also now reaching into the Brazilian market 
as it takes most of its aim at a Brazilian Marxist who who can be considered the father of our current education system. And it's um it's been very effective at that. So I encourage that. Uh, I think that the parallels that we're dealing with in the world right now to um, Maoism, especially in countries like Canada and the United States and, and Great Britain, are, are so profound that I have to encourage. I even wrote the foreword for this book. So I encourage people to get the book called uh, Mao's America by um, Shi Van Fleet. It's coming out soon. It's, I have an advanced copy. Um, I encourage people to pre-order that. It's actually very illuminating to see the parallels between what we call woke and uh, Maoism from somebody who survived uh, some pretty terrible circumstances when Mao was in power in China in the 1960s. Um, there's another book I've been reading, I just finished recently, called The Weaponization of Loneliness by Stella Morabito. She's a former CIA yeah, analyst. We had her as a guest on our show. That's a, that's a brilliant book, yes. That's a very good book. And she leans on this book, and I lean on this book as well. Uh, it's called um, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. Uh, and then the subtitle is A Study of Brainwashing in China. Um, this is a book by Robert J. Lifton, who is a psychiatrist who in the 1960s and was studying people in the early 1960s and, and late 1950s, was studying people who were getting shipped out of China straight out of the brainwashing prisons that Mao had set up uh, and being shipped to Hong Kong. He was in Hong Kong interviewing them when they would get off the boat. And he wrote uh, probably some of the best treatises on uh, totalitarian psychology that have ever been written. And so thought reform and the psychology of totalism is completely eye-opening. Most of us here in the West have been fortunate enough to have learned about fascism, or at least about the Nazis. And we've learned, we've read some of the stories, you know, from Ely Wiesel to Viktor Frankl to the actual you know, stories from the concentration camps from Jews who survived. But we have much less knowledge about how communists operated. And this book is a case, you know, it, there's, there's theory and explanation, but then it's case study after case study after case study of individuals that Lifton sat down with and interviewed to understand how they had their thought transformed, the psychological and social pressures they were put under to have their their brains washed into uh, Maoist communist doctrine. And uh, I think people find it, as I did, very unsettling in how recognizable it is. Just like with Xi Van Fleet's book, Mao's America, I think that they're going to find it uncomfortably familiar uh, that the, the things that they've experienced in their, their diversity, equity, inclusion training at work or their social emotional learning at school. Um, resonate very strongly with what Mao did to transform his population into ardent believers in his own communist cult. Thanks so much for those selections, uh, James. Those are terrific. And uh, also, thank you so much for spending this time with us uh, today. Um, you know, when I listened to the interview you you, uh, you had with Jordan Peterson on his show, where you talked about this bargain that you made with your wife, where you had a certain time frame within which you were going to decide whether you had, let's say, a, a calling or a vocation to do the work that you're doing now. I think I speak for many people in Canada and really around the world who are becoming familiar with their work that we're incredibly grateful uh, for the courage and the intensity that you bring to all of your work. You obviously have this astonishingly powerful mind, the gift for communicating you know, complex and important ideas 
and uh, you're, you're doing it just at a prolific rate. Uh, I fear that's taking a toll on you. I hope it's not. Yeah, I clearly have a lot of energy and really believe in what you're doing. But I just want to say how grateful we are for having you on the program and also to thank you for all the work that you're, that you're doing on behalf of everyone who values freedom and, and reality and, and what you call common sense. Um, and uh, we'll be praying for you and, and praying that uh, we're all going to see a day when uh, people like you are very important in restoring proper ideas, right thinking uh, to, to the Western world and indeed to all the world. So thank you so much today for being our special guest. And I want to wish you much continued success with your books and your public speaking and everything that you do. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, I just let everybody know, I'm very glad to be here in Canada. Very glad to be here helping out, uh, trying to bring information to people up here as well. It, it, I, I have a bias toward the United States as an American, of course, uh, but I, I would hate to see Canada uh, lost or, or any further down the slope. So I'm, I'm excited to be here and thank you for having me on your show. Thank you, sir. It's been our pleasure. 